I got a suntan yesterday walking in the streets of London, and uh, I'm now blushing. So uh, my redness is not permanent. But thanks for your very kind and warm welcome. Uh, our topic is Reformed Theology, and I want, first of all, to give our bearings and uh, lay down some uh, boundary markers, because uh, Reformed Theology, of course, has its root in the Reformation, and it's linked to John Calvin and what he known as Calvinism, and it's distanced by that definition from uh, other uh, theologies in this wide domain that we call theology. And I want to pause for a moment uh, over those differentiations. Uh, first of all, over against Romanism, the Reformed faith has, um, did make a strong stand against its aberrations. And I use the word Romanism de uh, deliberately because the core element in that ideology and theology is, of course, his emphasis on uh, the, the Church of Rome itself uh, as being uh, archiepiscopal uh, over all uh, other churches. And uh, that's the fundamental uh, point which uh, Luther, Calvin, and others objected to in the Reformation polemics way back in the 16th century. It's also uh, a different ism from uh, that of Martin Luther's uh, developing organization, Lutheranism, uh, because uh, it went down its own roots in several key areas, above all with regard to the sacraments, because Luther was so insistent that uh, at the Lord's Supper, uh, Jesus was present corporally uh, in the bread and with the bread and under the bread, and uh, the Reformed uh, theologians uh, objected to that emphasis on physical uh, or a carnal presence. There was also a Luther's emphasis uh, on the tension between law and grace and a profound aversion to the law in many respects. Whereas Luther Calvin emphasized the importance of law in our own Christian lives. And then we have the uh, gulf between Calvinism and what's known as Arminianism. And I want to pause over that for a moment because the famous uh, five points of Reformed faith reflect simply uh, the difference between ourselves and the Arminian position. Uh, these points were total depravity, unrational election, atonement, invincible grace, and uh, perseverance, uh, now widely subsumed under the mnemonic uh, tulip. But that's a very recent uh, development. It's a 20th century uh, innovation to invoke that tulip as a summary uh, of Calvinist distinctives. And uh, they themselves, those five points, are really quite misleading because they represent only a minimum uh, of Reformed thinking. Uh, reformed theology is a life system, not simply uh, a mere five points. And there's a much wider universe in Reformed thought uh, beyond those uh, bare five points. Uh, it was also distinguished over against uh, uh, Anabaptism. We tend to forget that. 
but Calvin uh, and others uh, did uh, confront uh, very uh, aggressively uh, this so-called uh, radical reformation, which was highly individualistic, uh, which also assayed or sought after uh, a view of church membership as for only the born again, an impossible assignment because we can't look beyond uh, people's outward appearance and their hearts are unknown to any out- outward observer. The Anabaptists, of course, also emphasized infant baptism uh, and additionally were very opposed to uh, involvement in the world, especially in the world's politics. So we have those various isms uh, over against which reform theology uh, in those early days uh, differentiated itself uh, very, very clearly. Now they're all with us in various forms still, and to an extent we define ourselves still uh, negatively over against those other occupants uh, of our theological domain. But what I want to do tonight is I want to identify uh, some of the key themes in Reformed theology and try to clarify them and also to relate them uh, to our own Christian lives today. And I want to start with the doctrine of the knowledge of God, which Calvin uh, was concerned to uh, lay down as his own foundation. He is uh, concerned to find what he calls wisdom, uh, not simply cognitive knowledge, not simply information, uh, but wisdom, that is, a knowledge which is uh, a lie to piety, and which uh, finds expression uh, in uh, godly living. And Calvin begins by reminding us that uh, there are two great areas of knowledge, or two components of wisdom, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And these are intertwined. We can't have the one, Calvin insists, without the other. We know ourselves, he says, only as we know ourselves in relation to God, as those dependent upon him, uh, as uh, those uh, indebted to him, those created by him, and also within the context of faith, those loved by him and forgiven by him uh, as his own children. And without that self nor without that knowledge of God and our standing before him, there is, Argus Calvin, uh, no real uh, self-knowledge. We don't know God except ourselves, except in relation to God. But then conversely, Calvin says, no, we know God only in relation to ourselves. Only to ourselves as creatures and as sinners and stand before him in awe as dependent and accountable, uh, only as such can we in fact hope uh, to know God. And so we have this mutual dependency. We know ourselves only in relation to God and know God only in relation to ourselves. Now, unlike medieval theologians uh, like Thomas Aquinas, Calvin doesn't begin his systematic theology institutes uh, by proving 
God's existence. He doesn't offer those uh, famous uh, proofs uh, offered by Aquinas. Instead, uh, he presupposes that we already have uh, a knowledge of God. And in this respect, Calvinist and the Bible itself, which begins with the great statement, uh, in the beginning, God. And so he's there before us. In the moment of our birth, in the moment of our conversion, the moment of our first inquiries of a theological kind, God is already there. We start with this given, this datum, uh, which is God himself, whom we do not prove, but who is there uh, before us. And Calvin, in his uh, opening chapters of the Institutes, has those uh, uh, famous statements about there being, for example, in all of us, uh, a sense of deity, or more precisely, uh, an awareness. It's not a physical sense. It's an awareness uh, of deity, an awareness uh, of a deity, of a being who is marked by possessing eternal power uh, and uh, godness. And uh, this is what Calvin calls the seed of religion which God has implanted uh, in every uh, human heart. And that's a momentous assertion if we reflect upon uh, the multicultural, multi-faith world in which we live and the challenge uh, of the secular environment uh, that is our context from day to day. And it's easy to imagine that most of those around us have no uh, awareness of God and no proclivity to with or affinity with religion at all. And yet Calvin says, and the Bible bears it out, that in every human heart uh, there is in fact the sense of deity and the seed uh, of religion. Now, it's not innate because Calvin bases his approach here on Paul's Romans chapter 1. And in that chapter, Paul makes plain that yes, what may be known about God is manifest in us, but only because it is revealed within us. We live surrounded by revelation. In the created world, we have God bearing witness to his own glory. And the infant of a day or so old, Calvin says, well, that infant is not aware of God. But she is so constituted that interacting with revelation with the world and the glories of creation she will come to have that awareness of God. And I'm tempted, because I'm not a philosopher, but uh, still to invoke uh, uh, Kant's concept of the synthetic a priori. For example, time and space are a priori assumptions that we all make. We assume time, uh, we assume space, and yet we are not born with that mental uh, equipment, 
but so born that we inevitably, in fact, come to awareness of it by virtue of our humanity and our environment. And so, likewise, uh, we come to be aware of our dependence on deity and our accountability uh, to him. And so we have uh, this uh, point of contact. Now, Calvin is also reminding us, of course, that uh, left to itself with nothing but that sense of deity, human nature won't come to any real wisdom. No religion, nor true faith, is a product simply uh, of this implanted uh, sense of deity. Now, it is implanted. It's put there by God himself, by means of revelation through uh, the invisible, the visible world around us. God bears witness that things, the invisible things of God, are made manifest by the made things. That's what Paul says to us. But, of course, Calvin then on to lay a foundation uh, for a special uh, divine revelation given to us in Holy Scripture. And with Luther, the Reformed faith has always emphasized the great principle of sola scriptura. The Bible is the source of theological knowledge and it's the norm of theological knowledge. And every uh, church council and every creed and every doctrine must be judged in the light of the teaching uh, of uh, Holy Scripture. I, I don't want to develop this uh, point too, uh, too much detail, but uh, I do want to just highlight uh, some uh, distinctive aspects of the reform view uh, of uh, Holy Scripture. Uh, first of all, uh, the use made by Calvin particularly uh, of the principle of accommodation. That is that uh, in giving us the Bible, God accommodates himself to our human capacities. Uh, at one point he speaks of the rudeness of his ancient people and God accompanied himself in scripture to that rudeness uh, of his ancient people or conversely uh, to uh, their hardness of heart. In other words, we have the problem that God must cope with our human finitude which is incapable of knowing the infinite, and our human sinfulness, which leaves us intellectually impaired and to a degree incapacitated. And so in the Bible, God must speak in such a way that we can hear him and understand. Now the primary example, of course, is the coming of uh, God himself incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. And Christ is a primary accommodation. God showing us his glory in a form that we can bear. Christ is his image. And in that image we see in the face of God, the, in the face of Christ we see the glory uh, of God. 
but it's an accommodation. We do not get an exhaustive knowledge of God uh, at the moment uh, by looking at the face uh, of Christ. And Calvin would also go on to argue that sometimes uh, God takes account uh, of our human hardness of heart, even as a legislator. In other words, and I need to be careful on this, uh, Calvin maintains that uh, the laws God gives us are not always laws that reflect God's absolute standards uh, or reflect absolute equity. Uh, for example, to quote uh, just two, two instances, uh, the use of Uruman Thumi uh, in the books uh, in the Pentateuch, where God allows that we can uh, consult him and discover his will uh, by consulting those two entities whose uh, identity we don't quite know, but you consulted them not, Calvin says, because God was endorsing this quasi-superstitious use uh, of Urim and Thumi, but he was adjusting uh, to uh, our human uh, capacities and to an extent to our human practices. And uh, also on the matter, of course, of divorce. Uh, where again uh, God uh, allows permissive legislation through Moses, uh, whereas he had in Genesis in the creation narrative laid down that marriage uh, was indissoluble uh, and we must not put it asunder. Nevertheless, God accommodates to the fact that marriages do break down and the victims in such breakdowns are normally women and children. And so to protect the weak, God uh, conceded, allowed, adjusted, but only, of course, within a very well-defined framework, there must be a bill of divorce. So the woman was not, in a way, in disgrace, but in a formal, uncontrolled manner. Now, Jesus uh, in his teaching, uh, in my view, repeals that adjustment for believers. But we may still ponder the application in our modern world uh, of this principle. There's a level at which God as legislator is legalizing what he cannot extirpate or eliminate. And how often do we as legislators, both in civil and ecclesiastical life, have to make a similar adjustment? And so that's one aspect of Calvin's and the Reformed teaching uh, on the scripture and its application to uh, our human situation. Another point that, uh, that goes back to Calvin and comes from image reform theology, the emphasis that not only is the written word, the word of God, but the preached word is also uh, the word of God. Now, on this, uh, Calvin 
is in the same mind as Martin Luther. And it's remarkable when you read the writings just how absolutely unconditional and emphatic they are that this is uh, the case. That Andrew's word, insofar as it is expository, that is, exegesis plus application, that word is God's word. And insofar as it's biblical, it's divinely authoritative. Now, in a world where at some levels we suffer from an excess of democracy, it's important to be reminded this authority emphasis that a sermon which is a homily, that is, which is content simply to explain God's word, is content with that to expound, unfold, expose its meaning, then that homily, that explanation, is itself the word of God. And that was a very firm emphasis on both Calvin and Luther's. The other point I wanted to raise here is the application of the principle of uh, Sola Scriptura uh, to worship in particular in terms of the so-called regular principle or the Puritan principle, namely that God must not be worshipped in any way not authorized by his own word. Luther was not quite at that point, and the Anglican articles, of course, uh, do find a place for ceremonies which are non-biblical on the basis of their not being forbidden, and says more or less what's not forbidden is permitted. But Reformed theology has said no must have positive biblical warrant for all the elements uh, in uh, our uh, worship. And uh, from this there came uh, the the Puritan movement, uh, at once so powerful, uh, not least in the Church of England, because you may recall that many exiles uh, fled England uh, from the Marian persecution uh, in uh, the 1550s and went to Frankfurt, where Knox ministered to them, and then uh, many others went to Geneva, where again they had the same influence uh, of the Calvinian attitude uh, towards worship. And we had the conflicts then between those who wanted to keep the, the, the Book of Common Prayer and those who wanted uh, uh, a less uh, sacerdotal uh, or ceremonial uh, kind of worship. Now, uh, the point here is that in that context, of course, with Romans, you had countless uh, elements in worship uh, which were non-biblical, like adoration uh, of the Virgin Mary, invocation of saints, elevation of the host, uh, and the use of images and statues and so on, uh, and many other ceremonies which were quite unwarranted. And uh, the Reformed Church had to address that issue and ask, well, 
how can we decide how God uh, should be worshipped? Our fundamental principle here is that that's up to God himself to tell us. The last time I said this, and I'm not uh, quite sort of foreign context, there were various uh, giggles and sneers in the audience. I've not attended any such tonight, mercifully, uh, because I think they assume, well, how can you tell what God likes? I you know so often that's what we do. We say of a particular uh, innovation or something we've lost. I like it, or I liked it when we did that. And the assumption is what we like is the criterion. And uh, the Reformed uh, Puritan principle was, no, you ask God's word how God would wish uh, to be worshipped. Now, Calvin distinguished uh, between the elements uh, in worship and its circumstances. He didn't say there's a version of the Bible for every circumstance, like when do you worship and for how long do you worship and what Bible version do you use and what hymnal do you use? No. But he said there are certain key elements in worship, uh, all of which must be there because they're mandatory. And beyond these five elements, we must be very, very careful. These elements were, of course, prayer, the reading of God's word, the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, the preaching of the word, and the sacraments of baptism, and the Lord's Supper. These were the mandated elements of worship. And any additional ceremonies were not mandated, therefore, uh, were not tolerable uh, in uh, Christian uh, worship. Now, this wasn't entirely uh, a negative thing. For example, uh, Calvin noticed uh, that, uh, and so did Luther, of course, that uh, in the early New Testament church, there was congregational singing. Whereas in the medieval churches, well, the choir sang uh, on uh, festival days, and uh, the monks sang uh, in the various uh, offices uh, in the monasteries, uh, but the people didn't sing. And so impelled by this principle, discovering that in the New Testament church the people sang, Calvin went on to uh, encourage and indeed to uh, inspire the uh, translation uh, of the Psalms uh, into metrical form and also uh, to arrange for new tunes uh, to be composed for those Psalms. Now, Luther was at the same time uh, encouraging congregational singing in his own tradition and uh, composing hymns for that purpose. Calvin didn't uh, embrace hymns with the same enthusiasm uh, as Luther did, although he did metrify uh, some key portions of God's word. And furthermore, 
tried his own hand at translating the Psalms into poetry, didn't do very well, and saw it didn't do very well, and gave it to those who could do it very well. And that's such an important moment in our own journey to self-knowledge. No, what do we can't do? And so Calvin found, I'm no good at that, and he found somebody else who did it much, much better. Uh, Luther found his melodies uh, very often in the pubs. Not our kind of pub, I suspect, or at least not the pubs I knew way back uh, when I stood outside them and wondered what went on inside them. Uh, but uh, in the pubs where there was uh, popular uh, folk music, I guess, and Luther largely used those. I did, of course, the Salvation Army came on a general booth uh, where the devil had the best tunes. He said, okay. But Calvin encouraged specific uh, music uh, for uh, his psalters. And in the course of that uh, aspiration, uh, there were some developments uh, in uh, music uh, itself. Uh, of course, the, the, the congregational elements was, was fundamental, but also uh, in that content eventually it was discovered that uh, the soprano voice uh, was uh, uh, far more dominant than the tenor voice, which up to that point uh, had been the melody uh, in singing. So these are incidental spin-offs uh, from Calvin's uh, encouragements of musical innovation with regard to the Psalter. Another area, of course, where uh, this principle matters with regard to the Lord's Supper, because in uh, uh, Romanism, the Lord's Supper, the the master becomes so elaborate uh, based on the, the, the principle of uh, transubstantiation, the conversion of the body of the bread and wine of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, Calvin insisted that Paul gives us a, a definite rubric for the Lord's Supper uh, in, uh, his, uh, uh, in 1 Corinthians 11 downwards, uh, 23 downwards, and he says, that's your rubric. You stick with that. Now, I'm not going to uh, uh, lay down principles at all, but it's a strategy that we have to assume that God himself must tell us what he likes in worship. Make sure that we have warrant for all the elements of our worship and uh, also, of course, that we have all the prescribed elements actually in our worship as part uh, of that worship. Now, that's why, of course, Reformed worship became a thing of such simplicity. I make about that in another context later. And so then we have this emphasis on wisdom as the knowledge of God this implanted awareness of deity, and then this the Bible, which is the, the, the source and the norm of all our theology and also of all our practice, especially of worship. The second and very obvious uh, theme to take up is predestination. And uh, here, uh, of course, there are uh, three uh, fundamental elements that we have to emphasize 
as part of the overall reform doctrine. There is, first of all, what we might call the doctrine of providence, uh, where God governs and preserves the universe in accordance with his own eternal plan and his own eternal purpose. He has foreordained uh, whatsoever uh, comes to pass. And this, of course, is a doctrine of stupendous importance because it reminds us that the world is under the control of a divine, omniscient, omnipotent, and all-present intelligence, which reduced uh, to the more memorable language uh, of Himnody uh, means that he has the whole world in his hands. And of course, this is Christological. It's not some unknown deity, some Neronian tribal demon who has the word in his hands, but the Lord Jesus Christ. The Revelation 5 holds the scroll and turns the pages uh, of our human history. The Reformed Church has never pretended that it understands all the mysteries of God's providence. The death of a child, multiple tragedies, inhumanities, ethnic cleansing. But it has approached them all from the standpoint of a confidence in the one on the throne and conscious also that the church itself has been perhaps the greatest single victim of these inhumanities and persecution. That's why in Revelation uh, we see in chapter 4 the throne before we see anything else or the various uh, plagues and so on which are to follow. I am so reluctant to simplify this or make it sound easy to hang on to. It's not always those who have suffered most who are most rebellious against God. And many of you know that in the moment of tragedy there is no comfort but that the universe is in the hands of God. And faith is assured that God knows what he's doing. And it's in faith we cling to the promise that he works all things together for the good of those who love him. Then there is, of course, the doctrine of election, uh, which uh, emphasizes that out of a fallen human right, in which each individual is incapable of saving yourself, and incapable also of accepting God's salvation, that the initiative must come from God himself, and rejoices therefore that out of that mass of fallen humanity God has chosen a multitude 
that no one can number but of every kindred their people and tongue and he's loved them loved you with an everlasting love there is no tension between love and election it is the love that elects the love is itself selective and that love is our ultimate I can trace everything back on my wise back to God's love but at the love my logic stops I have no answer to the why did God love me there I confront God's absolute and total sovereignty and say with Paul simply it pleased God and that in a way is where B.B. Wolf's statement that reformed faith consists fundamentally of a vision and a posture before the majesty of God before that throne that's where we fall and so there is God's all-embracing providence and there is God's electing love there is also the dark side the somber side what is called uh, in uh, the Westminster Confession God passing by some sinners and I do want to emphasize that it is a passing by uh, he uh, does not make them sinners he uh, leaves them with sin in the fallenness in the God defiance that they have chosen for themselves here perhaps is the most challenging of all the themes in reformed theology and here Calvin was less balanced than those who came after him that's not a common picture but that is in my judgment the truth Calvin spoke of a kind of symmetrical and equal foreordination to salvation and damnation later reformer speaks of an election to salvation and a passing by uh, of uh, some others so it's not uh, an exact equivalence it is grace being elective and grace passing by now if reformed theologians ever convey the impression of knowing everything they are ridiculed and they at other times admit they don't understand then again they face ridicule so here why God passed some by I do not know and maybe one day I'll ask him did he have reasons and if so could he tell us what the reasons are but it remains that the great mystery is that God had such pity on a human race 
would shortly rebel against him. Now, some general points uh, on this doctrine, which is in many ways notorious uh, as the uh, dark side uh, of Calvinism. First of all, it's not unique to Calvin or indeed original to Calvin, uh, but uh, goes back to uh, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas and others. The whole uh, Christian theological stream up to Calvin uh, was committed uh, fairly unequivocally uh, to this doctrine. And uh, secondly, it's not dominant in Calvin's theology. Uh, it comes into Calvin only in connection with this discussion uh, of the application of redemption uh, by the Holy Spirit. Because he sees that we are united to Christ only by the Spirit, and yet not all are so united. So why does he quicken and regenerate some, but not others? Why do some hear the gospel and not others? And it's here in book three of his institutes that Calvin discusses election. Not in book one, not in book two, but in book three in connection with this particular mystery of the sovereignty of God in effectual calling. In a Belgian confession, uh, I think I'm correct that uh, it is linked in fact to the discussion of the communion of saints. And that's around chapter 16, I think. And it's there we have this discussion of what election is. The formative principle of the Reformed faith is that God has spoken in his word. We listen to him and take our doctrines from him. We do not deduce them from a fundamental principle, but from the text of Holy Scripture. And also this, a very clear insistence in Calvinism and Reformed theology that this decree of election did not at all restrict or limit us in our preaching of the gospel. In fact, uh, the Synod of Dort, which defined the uh, Reformed faith of Arminian challenges, laid out categorically that this gospel, these promises, and the command to believe and repent must be preached to all nations and all men indiscriminately. That is a fundamental reformed Calvinist uh, principle. Hyper-Calvinism is itself a serious aberration from that position because it uh, denies this theophany of the gospel. But the reformed approach of Calvin and Thomas Chalmers and T. Spurgeon 
was emphatically not only preach to every nation, but go and tell every man, and that's their 17th century language, it's not gender neutral, go and tell every man, I have good news for you. Tell every man, I have good news for you. And again, before I leave this uh, particular issue, there are careful qualifications built into reform standards, like your own confession of faith, with regard to this principle of divine foreordination. And there are two caveats in particular that Andrew, I'm sure, knows of by heart, so if he's born with this, he can just switch off for a moment. Uh, but there are two caveats. One is that this doctrine does not destroy, but rather establishes liberty and contingency. Now, I think that's, you'll find that in the Confession of Faith and chapter 3. Liberty is not taken away, nor is contingency. What does that mean? It means that under God's foreordination, we act freely. And we make our free choices. God does not compel our choices. We act responsibly. We answer for our actions. And uh, it's also a fact, I think, of our own consciousness that when I do something, I do it. By my own choice and on my own recognizance. Now, I've seen people walk out of a church when they heard the word responsible because they say man is not responsible because of ordination. But the marvel here is that God has foreordained freedom. You know that in the choices you made today, you could have chosen differently. Now, those of you who are philosophers, which I'm not, may be of the view, of course, that the Reformed faith and its emphasis on foreordination requires you to be philosophically a determinist or a necessitarian who believes that uh, every change has a cause and every event is caught up in an excess which binds it to other events. And many Reformed theologians, I have to admit, and some living today, like my friend Professor Paul Helm, uh, are determinists. And so was, of course, Jonathan Edwards, and so was Thomas Chalmers. But that was a philosophical position, not a theological one. The Bible emphasizes our responsibility on the basis of our actions being unconstrained. Every single choice I make is my own choice, my personal choice. At foreordination, the confession insists, does not alter that. Now, 
how that foreordination can consist with and comport with freedom, I don't know, because there is no biblical answer to that question. And any answer proffered is merely a philosophical one. But this freedom is such an important part of our Reformed faith. This fact of accountability to God is so important a part of our Reformed faith. Now take this other, the second caveat, contingency. And the confession is saying with what I tend to think is remarkable sagacity and foresight that there is no contradiction between foreordination and contingency. Now, contingency means that some things happen by accident, they happen by chance. And I've heard many pious people say there's no such thing as chance. And I think that's very reformed and very confessional. But uh, there are many instances where we can ascertained, no cause for something. It's an accident, which is simply in the Latin, a happening. Why did it happen? It happened. Science, modern science, is built to an extent, or was, until the 1930s, on a deterministic philosophy that there is a cause for everything. And that's come not only into the physical sciences, where it is a fairly valid principle, but also into the social sciences, where you have penology, criminology, psychology, and all those other knowledges. And they're all basically that for all human behavior, there is a cause, a deterministic cause. And yet we have this 17th century Calvinist confession saying, no, there's such a thing as contingency, as accidents, as chance. And of course, the remarkable thing is that, as those of you have even more danger than I was discussing philosophy here, uh, that you have in physics the Heisenberg principle of indeterminacy. Now, I'm sure that uh, if I define it, I get it wrong, but it broadly means that although we can determine the, the, the trajectory of aggregates of subatomic particles, we can't determine the, the trajectory of an individual particle, where it's going to go, because we can't simultaneously know where it is and where it's going. And I'm just uh, going to let you reflect on that because many of you are more uh, acquainted with that area of life than I am. But it is important that we remember to set our foreordination or communist doctrine in the context of these emphases on freedom and on contingency. There is an openness in the cosmos and in human life. And of course the two points there of 
the indeterminacy and the freedom are, I suspect, closely intertwined. Edwards tried to establish that behind every human choice there was a previous event, a prior previous event, and so on, in an infinite regress. And the ultimate choice was the result of all these other events in a deterministic causal nexus. The confession of faith, for reasons I don't know, because there's no documentation of this part of their discussions, as far as I can gather, takes a line. No, there is freedom and there is contingency. And that marvelous language that God's decree establishes that you are free agent and establishes that accidents happen. Now, I want to raise one more thing, and I know my time is, is gone. But when I said 10 o'clock, Andrew wasn't too alarmed. But he did afterwards suggest an hour. So within, within those parameters. What I wanted to raise finally is this. The reformed doctrine of the Christian life. And again, I go back to Calvin. Not because he was infallible, which he wasn't, but because he is the, the source of this particular scheme. And he is the master doctor of Reformed theology. And in Book Theorist Institutes, there is a, a marvelous and famous section on the life of a Christian man. And it comes back again to my starting point, Calvin's concern for wisdom. Not for mere cognition or cerebral knowledge, or theology as information, but theology as to be lived. The Reformed faith as a life system, as a way of living. And for some uh, uh, six or seven chapters, Calvin develops this great theme. Now, there are several uh, key moments which I'm not going to expound in any detail. But the most fundamental is that the Christian life is rooted in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It begins with our being quickened by him in a new birth and from that point onwards he ministers to us intimately and personally as our empowerer and our helper at every point in our lives. I'll come back to that, God willing, tomorrow. Secondly, the Christian life is lived in the church. I just say, well, so what? We all know that. But in modern evangelicalism, the church is at a discount. We have all kinds of people who tell us, yes, I believe, but I don't go to church. We have uh, so many parachurch bodies. We have so many instances of spiritual free enterprise where people set up their own uh, spiritual small businesses. 
where people leave the church on the slightest provocation. That is one of the modern weaknesses of evangelicalism. Calvin and the Reformation and the Reformed churches down to the present day have a completely different view. Calvin builds on a third century church father Cyprian and his statement that the church is the mother of us all. We were nursed by her in infancy, have been conceived within her, and we are strengthened and matured by her ministry in the years that follow. And so for Calvin and the Reformed churches, the church itself is fundamental. That is where you have the preached word, the sacraments, and pastoral care, and discipline, and Christian fellowship. And fundamentally, Calvin says, you never leave her. And he has these notes of a church that are all well known enough to you above all, the preaching of the word and the sacraments and add with John Knox discipline or structural government. And where you find these, now I'm speaking uh, all my life to congregations which have within the audience many who have moved from church to church and don't want in any way to question why, but cannot live the Christian life outside the church. Extra ecclesiam nulla salus. Outside the church, there is no salvation. It's not a Roman principle. It's a Christian principle. We need the church. And that's why all the reformers and every branch of the European Reformation were so concerned to think very thoroughly about the church and its structures, organization, its liturgy, its ministry, how you train them, how you ordain them, how you organize them, because the church was so important. Now, of course, bear in mind this too. The church consists of all those who profess the true faith. And at the heart of that, looking at the Belgian Confession, there is this great fact of the communion of saints. That we simply need each other. It is tempting sometimes to go into isolation and develop spiritual and theological cabin fever. To Calvin, that was anathema. And equally, when things are wrong in the churches, We'll set up our own church, which is not subject to biblical norms. It's a, oh, it's not a church. It's only a, an organization. And so the rules don't apply. And I'm just saying again to try to inject into my own tradition something of the reverence and respect Calvin had for the church itself. Again, there was a third great foundation, and that was this. It was certainty 
as to our own salvation and our own adoption as the sons and daughters of God. Now we live in a postmodern world where certainty uh, is at a serious discount. If you think you've got it right, you've got it wrong. That is the current mantra. And I find that many in the Reformed churches have bought into that philosophy in their own professional lives. I hear it from some quarter virtually every day. And I hear later Reformed theologians see Charles Hodge castigated because they were certain. They were sure of what they believed. And the impression conveyed that that's a betrayal of the Reformed tradition and an opting for Aristotelian scholasticism or some other curious animal of that kind. But the Reformation, Herman Bavinck tells us, was about certainty. Certainty about God, certainty about the gospel facts, the resurrection particularly, and above all certainty about God's being your Father in heaven. And uh, Luther and Calvin, and Luther and Calvin bear in mind, Calvin had tremendous admiration for Luther. He loved him, he admired him, he revered him, and on almost everything these two men were at one, including predestination. And on this particularly, Luther, after all those years of a tormented conscience, discovers God's grace, that God gives righteousness rather than demands it. And he, at one point he tells a group of young people, be thankful, he says, when you were born. Because when I was young, whenever you were right with God, or were God's children. But now we have this great certainty that we are God's children. And you have it in Calvin. Now it doesn't mean that their faith never wobbled. Carl Luther had his black dog and Calvin to his moments of doubt. But they said this. The believer may doubt, but faith doesn't doubt. Faith is certainty. And having been an observer of a kind of piety, which sometimes was low, on the sort of assurance, I was astonished to find just how otherwise was the thought of Calvin himself, and how important this assurance was to him. Faith was the certainty that through Christ, God was your Father and God loved you. And that took you everywhere through all the calamities of life and to the stake, if need be, because you knew that God was, that God loved you. And of course, remember this, that joy is the oil of obedience. And her joy is based on this fact of our assurance that God loved. I really believe that if we took to heart 
if we all had this assurance, God loves me. That that would impel us in a most dynamic way. Luther looks in Galatians Galatians 2.20 commentary, these words, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Who is the Son of God? Oh, Luther says, that's the one who loves me. And who is Martin Luther? Oh, he says, oh, that's the man that the Lord Jesus Christ loves. These men would never have achieved what they did except for this great certainty that they were God's children. I want to make just one more point. I'm beyond my limits, but only by less than 10%. So, uh, the Reformed faith is a world-affirming faith. I spoke earlier on of the Anabaptists and the Reformed distancing itself from that Anabaptist movement. The Anabaptist movement was a world-denying faith. It was a faith that in its own curious way was monastic, a withdrawal from society, a withdrawal from politics and from public life. To use the marvelous word used by Abraham Kuyper, it was a cosmic. It denied the cosmos. It saw the cosmos as corrupt, as fallen, as useless, and you had to distance it from it in a stubborn antithesis. You said, no to the world. That was not the path taken by Calvin and his other associates in the Reformed tradition. They affirmed the world. And you'll find that if you look at Abraham Kuyper's lectures on Calvinism. Kuyper, the Dutch Prime Minister, wrote 1905, and a great scholar, theologian as well, an educationist. And uh, he, in these lectures, discusses Calvinism and religion, Calvinism and politics, Calvinism and science, Calvinism and art. Because it was, he said, a life system. It was world affirmation. Those spheres were legitimate spheres uh, of human endeavor, anticipation, and he would even argue that they had their own independence, particularly from the church and from the clergy. Science must not be dominated by the clergy or reined in by them, nor must dart or politics. These are independent spheres. And linked to this was the doctrine of common grace or general grace. That God gave us not only spiritual gifts, but also common grace gifts. For example, uh, in Genesis, editor of Genesis, the first musicians don't belong to uh, the family of Seth. They belong to the pagan, the heathen tradition. Calvin says, okay, that's God's sovereign grace. And down through history, Many of the most conspicuous uh, figures whom you see around the city, all those statues, often manifestations of God's grace to unbelievers. 
And these unbelievers have created their own communities of politics, science, art, with their own standards, common grace standards, within which believers may participate with a good conscience. I, I'm going to leave it there, but I'm haunted, as I say that, uh, by the question of Calvinism and art. And uh, that is a topic that deserves exploration in its own right. But the marvelous thing is, even looking at a church like this, the link, and Kuiper makes this very closely, Fundamentally, is almost saying that the primary art form is architecture. Now, that may not be true. But he says, Calvinists could not have built such architecture. And you can't blame it for that. A, because it never had the resources. And B, because its religious principle would not allow it. Because these great cathedrals are not, he says, consistent with the Reformation principle. They are based on a priestly religion and so on. Now, I'm not going to develop that. But, you know, among yourselves, uh, some of you may be artists, petitions, uh, poets, uh, architects, uh, whatever. But it is the Inherent legitimacy, that's important. And the question, how would Calvinism express itself in art, in uh, a novel, such as Marlon Robinson's fiction, uh, in painting, uh, in architecture, is there a Calvinistic expression of art that we could envisage? Well, I shall leave it there, and we go and live this life in the world outside. Thanks for listening.